We need to talk about the biggest fantasy movie of all time, but I do not know what to say. You have my random tirades. And my well-planned summaries. And my class commentary. Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mokel, here with my epic co-hosts. Mm-hmm. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a wizard that loves the Hobbit leaf too much. It's funny because you're straight edge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm Jack Olander, a tall hobbit that people keep calling an elf. Not. I kn- I knew you were gonna say a tall hobbit. I love it. I just was, I was like, he's gonna say he's a tall hobbit. <laughs> it's all there is. You don't eat enough to be a hobbit. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think you can pack true. it in. Oh, yeah. he can pack it in, but you know. <laughs> it's true. I would like to see an elf just chilling in Hobbiton, though. Just like, hey, it's a cool place. <laughs> don't knock it till you try. People it. here are chill. <laughs> They build a tree house and some of the oak trees are there. Yeah, like an elf house in Hobbiton. That's so good. The hobbits just always refer to them as our eccentric neighbor. Well, guys, this week, we finally did it. We watched The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, one of the biggest fantasy movies of all time, part of the fantasy franchise that probably if you do like a, if you did the... 23 and me if you did the dna test on swords and satire like this movie would be a direct line to why this podcast exists somewhere along the way yeah so most people probably know all the details of this movie but we'll go over a few of them uh the lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring was released in 2001 it was directed by peter jackson and it stars just so many people but we'll name a few of them right here. I was about to say, and it would be obscene to list them all, so we won't bother. I, I considered it, but no, we've got Elijah Wood, Sean Astin, Sir Ian McKellen, Vigo Mortensen, Sean Bean, the daughter of Aerosmith Man, <laughs> Guy from Lost. <laughs> um, oh, 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 the, the pirate, <laughs> sorry, the... <laughs> <laughs> the creepy suitor from Outlander in season four. <laughs> Wait, who's that? <laughs> Pippin. <laughs> oh wow, Do- uh, Dom. Nice. Dom- uh, Dominic, isn't that him? Don- no, Dominic that's Mohan? that's Maria oh. Doc. God I don't damn know it! If he's a Dom. <laughs> he probably is. Um, the blacksmith from Pirates of the Caribbean, the bad guy from uh, the Matrix, and additional cast. <laughs> Additional cast? That's a returning classic, I think. I think you're right, yeah. Oh, I, I love that. <laughs> yeah. But we but before we start talking too much about this grand scale epic, I think Chelsea has a summary locked, loaded, and in the chamber. That's right. Here's a summary for Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. Open on narration. 
Yeah, actually, I'm thinking, like, do I want to do a summary for this? Like, Is I, it even necessary? I know. So many people have to know what this movie is all about. Hold on. Check it out. I can do it. There's a ring, right? It's one ring. <laughs> and some will say it rules them all. There's a hobbit named Frodo. You know, I've He always... gets the ring. Wait, 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 wait. You know, I've always wanted a ring that, you know... <laughs> rules them all and in the darkness binds them it's a reasonable thing to want and you know what it goes with any outfit our friend casey might like a, a darkness ring like that <laughs> well remember the <laughs> the ring gives you powers based on your like own personal qualities and ambition so it'd give her the ability to make it be sunny all the time <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good <laughs> it's a good ring that's yeah. right the solar powered goth <laughs> yeah um no but really it's like the movie has been out for almost 20 years now so it's like everybody's gotta know what it's about but <laughs> just in case you, for some wild and crazy reason you don't i guess we'll go through it here if somehow you are listening to this podcast and you've never seen the lord of the rings <laughs> my god in this hour and a half long epic <laughs> let's try to make it the, our shortest summary ever because of how long the movie is okay so there are hobbits one is named bilbo one is named frodo the rest are kind of their crew so Frodo gets the ring passed down from Bilbo. He, he's he got to take it to Mount Doom because it's a no good, evil, bad ring. And he gets it to Mount Doom in this movie and like ends the whole struggle, right? Unfortunately not. There are going to be many more <laughs> fake endings before <laughs> that will come to pass. God, that is so true. So Gandalf, his wizard friend tells him he's got to go on this mission and he makes Sam go with him. He forces the other hobbit Sam to go with them. They make their way. I'm going to fucking skip over some stuff. The ring wraiths are following them. You got to know what those are. <laughs> What's a ring wraith? It's a it's former a king yeah. who was given a ring of power, but those rings of power that were given to the nine kings of men were cursed by Sauron, the ringmaker. They were bad. They were downright bad rings. You see, Sauron made three rings for the elves, five elves. Five, five elves five, for the dwarves. Five elves for the dwarves. <laughs> and, nine and, and, dwarves and nine dwarves for the humans. <laughs> five rings for the dwarves, nine rings for the humans. But he created one ring that would have power over all the other rings. So when those human kings died, they became these undead kind of slaves to the power of the one ring and to sauron yeah so they're hunting frodo because they want to bring the one ring back to sauron and it's kind of like the ring is a horcrux and it means that sauron can never really die if the ring is still around and so he, i would he, say it's more of a phylactery but sure okay that's better and um so he's existing as one like eye at the top of this tower it's like encapsulating his spirit is like it's the ultimate panopticon. I see you. P. Frodo 
and Sam get a lot of friends along the way. Aww. Who join them. There, it ends up there's nine of them in the fellowship, and there's nine ring raids after them. Yeah, but oh my god. But there ain't nine in the fellowship by the end of this thing. <laughs> Yeah, when they're going through the Mines of Moria later in the movie. So if if we're jumping around too much for you, you're just going to have to watch the movie, I guess. <laughs> Not a bad idea. It's a quick one. So, like, you should be able to bang it it's out. It's a brisk three hours, unless you watch the extended cut, which is a brisk four hours. Yeah. Uh. So when they're in the Mines, Gandalf yeets a Balrog and himself over a cliff. And... Uh, dies that way when he could have totally, you know... Dies, asterisk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, he, they don't see him die. They assume he's dead. How dies about that? Dies in quotation marks. Guys, if I ever fall into a flaming pit like thousands of feet into the earth, do not assume I am dead. Yeah. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. He's a kill-stealing bastard. I know. He's going to come back in the next movie so leveled up from fighting that fucking Balrog by himself, getting all the XP. So Frodo and friends get help from a lot of different elves along the way. And um, they eventually make their way to the outskirts of Gondor, the human realm. And uh, Frodo basically bounces from the rest of the crew because he can see they're all getting corrupted by the ring. It kind of has a mind of its own. And um, Sam refuses to be ditched, and so he nearly kills himself by drowning to try to follow Frodo. And Frodo pulls him out of the water, and they they start heading over to Mordor, all but just the two of them. It's clear, the love in their eyes is very clear at the end there. Oh, they're such good friends. Meanwhile, they were being hunted by orcs, and so... Uh, Frodo's friends Merry and Pippin were captured by them and Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas decide to hunt the orcs so that they can save the two other hobbits. Now are these like noble and misunderstood orcs like in a lot of modern fiction? No they're just pure evil. Oh okay that's a bummer. Oh, yeah. One other major point. Boromir dies. Aww. Trying to save Merry and Pippin. It's a very sad moment. But to be fair, Boromir was played by Sean Bean. So, so. his death was foretold in the annals of, of movie history. Exactly. So I think this has been a flawless summary so far. <laughs> very succinct. <laughs> very on topic. And, and easy to follow. Mm -hmm. So I think that we should move on. That works for me. Uh, would you like to head to the Delve? That sounds like a great idea. Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of the Lord of the Rings, colon, the Fellowship of the Ring. So, guys, this movie and, of course, The Lord of the Rings has been picked apart for, I mean, the books for decades, the movies now for almost 20 years. There's a lot you can say about it, but, you know, there's also a lot that has been said about it. So I thought we might start by taking a slightly different 
tact here and talking a little bit more about what the Lord of the Rings represents for us as fantasy fans, as people who've grown up enjoying fantasy media and everything, and just kind of like having our experiences. Maybe we can talk about the first times we were exposed to Middle Earth, just kind of like our experiences with it, all that kind of stuff. And this episode is kind of the launching off point for the second year of Swords and Satire. That's we're, right. We're starting a new slew of movies. We've got, and with The Lord of the Rings, we've really got like kind of a movie that also launched a new interest in fantasy, along with like the Harry Potter books and movies too, uh, from about the same time period that this came out, the early 2000s. And introduced like a whole new generation of people to fantasy people like jack who was a, it's true who was but a wee child when this movie came out yeah i'm remembering i was mainly exposed to the hobbit when i was younger i remember reading it i think when i was actually in high school so i came to it kind of late and i was um always an avid reader when i was younger than that uh, this is making me think of the just the franchise in general, you know. And to be honest, I had a problem with reading when I was er in early grade school. I was behind and I wasn't reading at a second grade level when I was in that grade. And so in the school I was at, they uh, put me into three different reading classes I was in first grade, second grade, and an after-school program to try to get me up to speed. And um, eventually I passed that, and it, it felt really good. And then after that, I loved reading, and I got into it. But this was a Christian school, and I grew up in a Christian household that was very heavily reg regulated in terms of any fantasy media, since so much of it has to do with other mythologies and magic. And so I, uh, and that might be kind of strange because Jack's my brother <laughs> and his upbringing was very And different. he's of the devil, so I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Cthulhu fatality. Yes, and Jack, by the time Jack came around, everything was so different. But yeah, oh, so those early days of trying to get Jack to be able to play Dungeons and Dragons with us. I was interested in fantasy, but I often had to hide it or try to watch things when my parents were around or when I was at friends' houses. Um, and when I was in the fifth grade, I used to have to kind of hide the books I would read. And by that grade, by the way, I was such an avid reader that I was reading at a 10th grade reading level. Chelsea's basically nice. a speed reader now, so yeah. like, she'll, I will start a book and she will like see it and pick it up and I'll be like halfway through the first book and Chelsea will be like three books into the series, like see the Dresden Files or <laughs> <laughs> other other series like that that I've started that now I can't even keep up with and Chelsea's done with. Yeah, and I usually have um at least five books going at a time and i can keep track of all of them um usually humble more, brag usually more than that though but <laughs> <laughs> it's just so different from most people today you know and i i feel kind of strange about that but anyway so 
I had a, a rough start early on and it, I've come a long way since then. And uh, all that is to say that I didn't get into the Lord of the Rings until later. And once I did, I really loved it. And I kind of had wished in a way that I had been able to read it when I was younger because it's, I mean, Tolkien wrote it as a mythology to create a true English mythology besides um, King Arthur. But he wanted one, even though he was Christian himself, he wanted one, he wanted a mythology for England that was not tied to Christianity. And so he did his best to decouple it from that as much as any one of us can uh, decouple our own personalities or cultural upbringing from the things we write or create. It's, it's very difficult to do. That's all I'm saying. And yeah, for those of you who are less familiar with Tolkien, he was a professor of Anglo-Saxon literature, very familiar with Beowulf and the Norse epics uh, <clears throat> and the Norse sagas and all that type of stuff that inspired the Lord of the Rings, where we get like elves and dwarves as concepts. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that when this movie came out, I had only read The Hobbit, and I was aware of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but I hadn't been able to have access to it. I was still only 17 when this movie came out, so I had just been out of the house for maybe a, a little less than a year by that point. So I was starting to expand my horizon slowly but surely, and I, I got the books after I saw this movie and started reading them, and I... I reread books that I really love, especially fantasy books. And so I, for a while, was rereading them every so often. Now I feel like it's been a long time. I need to read them again. But so this movie really helped open my fantasy horizons and helped kind of reinvigorate fantasy for me. Nice. And I started watching more movies and reading more books and really delving into the genre and I just find it I love fantasy I find it to be such a cre intensely creative space that I feel so comfortable in <laughs> much better than reality am I right <laughs> yeah. exactly well in my life imagine reading a book <laughs> no thanks <laughs> uh the end. Part of the youngster <laughs> generation, you know. I feel like we were taught how to read books, but then at this point in time, I know so many people my age don't do that sort of thing. Like, pick up a physical copy of a book and read books? it. Books? No, oh, thank you. <laughs> exactly. A lot Just of people, including no. myself, have kind of transitioned into the audiobook territory, which is how I'm planning on experiencing... Lord of the Rings, as well as the movies. While we were watching Fellowship of the Ring, I got The Hobbit nice. on an audiobook service uh, just so I could start going through it. But like, the, like Chelsea and Jamie were saying, this came out when I was really young. So obviously I don't remember it from that time. Although I do know I saw them at that point. So I always have to explain to people like, yeah, I haven't seen Lord of the Rings. They're like, but you, ha you, oh, but you haven't seen Lord of the Rings? And I have to be like, okay, technically I did, but I don't remember it. I was young. So yeah. like, 
You could just let me say I have it. <laughs> right? Please. Also, it's like, like... Dude, you have to see Lord <laughs> yeah. of the... I'm like, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah, and so now we're doing it. We watched Fellowship. And of course, I know some of the story beats. I know some of the famous scenes, the characters, some of the twists, some a lot of the general lore. Like you probably know, I'm like a big part of the nerd world, which means, you know, I am aware of Lord of the Rings lore, even if I haven't actively been a part of the works. And if you're playing stuff like Dungeons and Dragons, like Jamie mentioned, which the three of us play... Like, it's so directly influenced by that. <laughs> yes. That I'm like, of course, I know all about Tolkien dwarves. They love stone cutting and <laughs> forging, you know? It's what they do. And also, like, of course, elves live in the trees and have special elven magic. It's like, everything is inspired by Tolkien. Yeah. It's the cornerstone of everything. And fantasy is pretty much, like, at least in the past year or two, the only novel genre that i've been interested in there's a little bit of there's been a little bit of sci-fi but things like the witcher that we've been talking about their elves are very tolkien like and uh but grittier but grit as in many things yeah and like it's influences in everything so you can't avoid it if you like nerdy stuff you know and i don't want to I haven't seen it because I've been avoiding it. It's just, uh, they're long. <laughs> they're very long films. Yeah. But like you said, you know a lot of the lore. You know, like, you know about wizards and Maiar and the different races of Middle-earth and all that. The origins yeah. of different characters and species and races throughout the series. Yeah, I think I know... Everything about Lord of the Rings, essentially, except for the story beats. <laughs> <laughs> and the memes. You know the memes. I know the memes, to be sure. Potatoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, what about second breakfast? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know. I got it. The guy who fell, who falls on the carrot, and it's a metaphor for snapping his dick in half. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know the memes. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, the lore is very cool, to be sure. I like hearing about the wizards. They're essentially like a form of celestials. Like, I, I've heard them be compared to angels a lot, but like you were saying, he was kind of trying to disconnect himself from, like, being just another Christian narrative. But the wizards essentially play the role of angels in the setting, and... There are even the Balrogs, which are, like, big, devilly, demonic-looking figures which are corrupted wizards. Yeah. So I'm like, this is, it's not Christianity, but it's kind of close. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you can't totally um, divorce yourself from your, you know, cultural inclinations or, or influences. Yeah, I mean, clearly Tolkien saw a great appeal in themes of salvation and sacrifice and things like that, that, overlap between say christianity and the old norse religions yeah it's a cool theme to be sure and i think we all like that redemption arc sort of thing as well yeah but uh 
Yeah, uh, when it comes to the religious background sort of thing, yeah, our parents were a lot looser about magic when I was, you know, around. Mm -hmm. Just, well, they didn't want me reading Harry Potter. I remember that. I mean, these days we see the wisdom in that advice. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, and uh, they didn't want me playing D&D. But I think of the, like, seven kids, I'm the one who stuck with the Christianity, right? Yeah. So I think my way of weaseling into the fantasy world was me just being like, oh, but mom, you know, I'm chill. I'm chill. (laughs) Is is Jack cool? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She was like, now, Jack, I, I don't trust that sort of thing. It's pretty bad. I'm like, Mom, you know, I stick with it. I go to church with you. It's all good. Do you just say, Mom, it's okay. I only play paladins. Yeah, no, it's pretty funny. Well, this was also at a time in my life where I was buying hyper-violent Xbox games and putting a positive spin on it so she would buy them for me. mom this other mob is stealing money from the poor i have to murder them all in cold blood it's like mom you see i'm a cowboy trying to save my family by hunting down ex-criminal no by hunting down criminals is that why you're dragging someone behind your horse through the streets He's a bad guy. I'm making an example. <laughs> he had it coming. I'm setting an example. No. Now let's put this in the context of the Crusades. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, um, yeah, eventually I just worked her up to it. And now she's totally fine hearing like about all the fantasy stuff I'm into and like Cthulhu and Lovecraft and you know, it's all marketing. It's how you put a spin on the sales pitch. And there you go. Fantasy suddenly acceptable. There you go. Nice. So Lord of the Rings, uh, it's taken me a long time to get around to watching it, but I've always been exposed to it. I grew up in a post Lord of the Rings world. Yeah, that is true. true. I mean, so did we all, but I think you mean the movie specifically. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, that's what I assumed he was talking about. I mean, that was the release of the Lord of the Rings was the most important thing that happened in the world in 2001, right? <laughs> ha 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 ha. Maybe. I was I was three. I'll claim deniability. Fair. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, what about you, Jamie? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked. My first exposure to the Lord of the Rings comes through a little video game console called the Super Nintendo Entertainment System because I rented the Lord of the Rings video game when I was probably like 11 and boy, that game confused the fuck out of me and I had no idea what was going on and I didn't know what a Lord of the Rings was or anything like that. And that was kind of the extent of my uh, early exposure to the Lord of the Rings. Fast forward to 2001. I was not really an avid reader as a young teenager or adolescent. Um, I did read like the Doom 
books, not Dune, not Frank Herbert's books, the Doom video game novel uh, adaptations. I read Very those. Cool. Um, <laughs> I read a lot of magazines, mostly like heavy metal magazines and like tattoo stuff, things like that. So needless to say, I didn't really know much about Lord of the Rings. But then comes 2001 and a little movie called The Fellowship of the Ring is playing down the street at the Grand Lake Movie Theater, uh, Oakland's classic movie palace on Grand. And we were together at that point, so we went and saw it Yeah, together. Chelsea and I saw it with some of our friends, and I really had no idea what to expect. And three hours later, I was like, holy shit, what have I been missing? The movie totally blew my hair back, because back then I had hair. <laughs> And, you know, from that point on... To show that time had passed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. And from that point on, yeah, I was living and breathing everything Tolkien I could, which really, honestly, was mostly the movies and the video games. I played a lot of the, like, PlayStation 2 games that were coming out along with the movies. I bought the special editions and watched the behind-the-scenes and the making-of stuff. I did end up reading the books as well. I don't actually know if I've ever completely finished them, which makes me feel a little weird, like that it's still something that I have a great deal of tension about to this day as a fantasy fan. I'm almost 40 and I've never actually finished reading The Lord of the Rings. But here I am hosting a podcast about fantasy movies. I've seen all the movies, I guess. So the movie thing, I guess, stands up to scrutiny as far as that goes. Yeah. But yeah, I would say that The Lord of the Rings has had a really significant impact on my life and my interests. Yeah, that's very cool. You know what, guys? I think this is the perfect time to take a break and head over to the bounty board. This week, Swords and Satire is proud to be sponsored by Audible. Now, I got to tell you, I've been an Audible subscriber for a long time, and I've really enjoyed the audiobooks that I've listened to through the service. They've got a great selection of memoirs by filmmakers and actors from some of our favorite fantasy movies. Obviously, a lot of fantasy and sci-fi literature that all three of us love here at Swords and Satire, and tons of other great content that you're definitely going to enjoy. So we want to give you the opportunity to sign up for Audible and also help support our show by going to audibletrial.com slash swords and sign up for your free 30-day trial. And when you do that, you're going to get a credit for a free book that's yours to keep, whether or not you keep your membership. You're going to get access to select Audible Originals, and you'll get an email reminder before your trial ends. But I'm sure you're going to decide that you want to keep your membership because there's so much that Audible provides. They have thousands of titles for you to choose from, and they're constantly adding new content all the time. So once again, visit audibletrial.com swords to sign up for your 30-day trial, your choice of an audiobook, and to help support our show. And now back to the episode. I was just remembering, I forgot to mention, so iconic about Lord of the Rings, it, it Tolkien came up with orcs. 
that's a thing in Dungeons and Dragons. Orcs and half orcs are a major part of so many parties and stories, like campaigns. Orcs weren't a thing until Tolkien came up with them. He was the founder of that fantasy race. I think that's right. He is <laughs> the father of orcs. He's the father of orcs. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, father of orcs. Nice. Too bad his orcs are deeply problematic, much like early D&D orcs. But we can probably talk a little bit about that at some point. Yeah, that's really cool. I uh, guess I never really thought about that, to be honest. Yeah. Because he did pull so much from real world mythology and then reskinned it and everything. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. So what's problematic about the orcs? They are the dark-skinned race that comes from beneath the surface of the ground that is, like, birthed for nothing but battle and chaos, and they are unambiguously evil. They're, they are a sentient race who never shows any form of individuality in terms of changing their own morality or any examples of orcs who might be redeemable from a story perspective. I get that. Isn't it in a world where, like, evil is a thing? Not in the way that, like, D&D does it. Right. Not where things are, like, born, like, devils or demons in D&D that have, like, an inherent cosmology that is part of their actual makeup that makes them part of these universal systems of good and evil as, like, codified by the rules and therefore the lore of the game. Like it's more that it is just this unassumed idea, uh, sorry, this unquestioned idea that some people, even as sentient beings capable of complex thought, like orcs are, will just 100% of the time be evil, brutal, and, you know, quote unquote, savage. Right, that makes sense. I guess it's ju I gave it a pass because, well, A, it's probably normalized, and also since they were designed to be evil. Just because, like, I could probably design a computer to be evil. <laughs> right. If it's sentient, though, I don't know what that means. We don't have a lot of examples of non-human sentience, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but, like, in the, in the backstory of The Lord of the Rings, there are you know humans that uh, the race of humans is called men in lord of the rings i mean i don't think that was like any attempt at saying anything by tolkien i think that was just like the words he had or the words he chose um and you know there are men who are good and there are men who are evil and there are ones that don't really have a strong moral compass and, and all that you get a spectrum same with elves right same with dwarves hobbits are mostly just good it seems like but also hobbits were intentionally supposed to represent england which is another deeply problematic aspect of tolkien's worldview that the english were just quaint and fun and like to eat a lot and that's the only thing that matters about us thank you very much we're just unassuming throughout history <laughs> oh dude if I were going to be designing the hobbits as representing England, I would have them be exactly the same, except for instead of nice grassy hills, it would just be corpses that they've built their houses <laughs> under, big piles of corpses. Yeah. Much more fitting. And they'd be smoking opium. 
every yeah much more fitting uh i was i thought you were just gonna say like they would be expansionist imperialist hobbits which i think is actually a fun and interesting idea to play that with is actually very funny uh... Just like sipping tea while sitting on a chair made out of bones, dude. Now here, like, here's something that we uh, cheerio. Here's an idea that we've yet to broach: Hobbit soccer hooligans. Oh God, soccer hooligans. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Or football hooligans. I'm sorry, you probably didn't understand when I used the American term. I would really love to see a hobbit like Bilbo just take an orc out, like take out his shins with a cricket bat. Just headbutt to the nuts. Oh, oh. that's about where they stand. So. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Nut height. Ah, oh, you towering wanker. That was more right. Irish. Um, <laughs> Another thing about the orcs is uh, I think corruption, maybe not evil, but corruption as like a sign of evilizing stuff is it quantifiable in the tolkien world because the balrogs are corrupted wizards like i mentioned and they are just like pure entities of destruction and cruelty well so right? so that is a good point so the orcs in tolkien's world are corrupted elves yeah yes good so point. that would include the goblins as well yeah so they're elves i also kind of well, they always... were elves I also kind yeah. of always assumed that the goblins were, corrupted halflings were corrupted halflings. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And then you slap some human blood in an orc, and you get the orakai, well, which are far superior. Well, if anyone wants to delve deeper into that stuff, I suggest uh, reading a little book called The Silmarillion. Yeah, Silmarillion. <laughs> which goes into a lot of extensive detail about the backstory of Middle Earth. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I was kind of thinking about this as we were watching the movie and there's this message that since all these races can kind of be corrupted and then change form into something else and become like an agent of pure evil it kind of communicates that hate can twist and distort what was once beautiful or good and you can kind of take that as a message for a capacity for human emotion and what can can happen to people. Yeah, that's very Princess Mononoke. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Turning you into demons when you give in to hate. Right. Yeah. 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 It's very yeah, it is. It is. So Tolkien was writing at the time of World War Two, Hitler and Germany and all that. And in Tolkien's own estimation, he didn't care for allegory and didn't like accusations that the Lord of the Rings was a World War II allegory. And to some degree, I can respect his statement. But for years, I've also argued that that's also kind of bullshit. What's going on in the world around you is going to affect a lot of what you have to write and what you have to say. It's true. But I think what he meant is like he didn't want it to be reduced to that because sure. he wanted it to have kind of more archetypal associations. Absolutely. But at the same time, it's a little self-aggrandizing because as a his scholar of history, Tolkien would have also known that like the Norse sagas were being written at a time when the values that are reflected in those stories were values that people held. 
Right. Tolkien was writing about resistance to industrialism, mm -hmm. fighting back against powerful foes that seem insurmountable, like things that were going on in his world fed into his stories. Exactly. Just like they do into any fiction that's written at any time period. And and we're all so unaware of these influences and it can creep into anything we create without realizing it, but it takes others kind of looking back on it and other people interpreting anything that we any of us might create to really give it weight and help flesh out what is going on within the work itself in terms of themes and the ideals that are inherent within the work. Yeah. I mean, we write in the context we live. Right. It, any any piece of fiction or any art says more about the time and context that it was created in than anything else. And this seems like as good a time as any to reiterate a statement I made um, that I made in a previous episode when we were talking about the political in fiction and to remind listeners that every piece of art is political and anybody who tells you that they do not want you politicizing the media they like is either willfully ignorant or is hiding something about themselves that they don't want being brought to light or that they're ashamed of because every single piece of media is political the idea that something might lack politics is in itself a political viewpoint because it it follows the idea that there is a normal and you know quote-unquote clean version of reality and fiction that is unsullied by politics which simply does not exist yeah the only reason that it seems normal is because it is the dominant narrative and it just goes unquestioned exactly also to tolkien's credit even if it was like an unintentional world war ii analogy sure. it is a hundred million times more subtle than the World War II analogies we are still exactly using in popular films today. Sure. If you've seen the newest Star Wars sequel trilogy, where they are literally just... Space parodying, Nazis. Yeah, parodying Nazi rallies, but putting it in space. I mean, keep in mind that George Lucas was doing the same thing when he called the soldiers stormtroopers. Yeah. That's just what Nazi uh, soldiers were called. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, and there's, it's just, like you said, so commonplace to be like, we need bad guys, make them Nazis. Right? Sure. Which, I mean, I that, that, yeah, it makes sense on the one it's hand. It's hard to point out specifically all of the all of the media that does it because it's it really feels today like it's all of them like we all get nazis are the bad guys but can you well hopefully i mean that's up for debate <laughs> these days but come up with your own villain please <laughs> yeah please. yeah and i mean you're absolutely right tolkien was creating this fantasy genre as we know it today, building off of the works of like Lord Dunsany and other authors of like the 19th and 20th century that came before him, you know, building on mythology and these ancient worldviews. And 
he really was creating this text that was that feels very original still to this day. I mean, he created these backstories and they don't just feel like historical veneer. They don't just feel like a veneer over real world histories because he layered them in so many interesting ways. He fleshed them out well beyond what most people would put into their fiction. Yes. Not only did he pull from those varied sources, which helped with that, these books were also based on dreams he had and conversations he had about the characters and letter correspondence with like his son and some of his other collaborators. And so through dialogue, through dreams and through real world mythology and the literary tradition that he grew up with, he pulled that all together. And on that note, I mean, it's really cool that he started writing the Middle Earth stories as bedtime stories for his children. I love that. Too. Like that was where The Hobbit came from, was Tolkien creating stories for his son Christopher for bedtime. I, it's so cool. It's so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. That's generally why when you say stuff like, oh, I don't like that the hobbits are supposed to be the British, right? I, I, in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, he made it for his kids and his kids live in England, right? I'm like, of course he's going to make it seem really nice. That's and then fair. I'm like, and then you're like, the orcs are just objectively evil. And I'm like, well, he's telling it to a little kid, right? Of course they're just evil. But the story did evolve and become more complicated when he started writing The Lord of the Rings and Definitely. those kind of simplistic, the, the kind of simplistic morality of The Hobbit. I mean, it does feel quite quaint in the books compared to the morality of The Lord of the Rings, which is much more about personal sacrifice, determination, fatalism, and things like that. Right, it's about World War II. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is for an older audience, and right, yet it still definitely. kind of falls back on these simplistic views of good and evil to some extent, or or kind of these essentialist views that some people are simply born to be evil. And that's where I take some issue. It still remains relevant to people today, though. Sure, absolutely. I mean, carried on through the movies and then games now uh, board games that we have i mean i'm a huge tolkien apologist i would like to make it very clear that i love middle earth as a world and am completely immersed in it yeah when are we gonna get that fourth lord of the rings book though that's the cimmerillion <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's you're right book uh. <laughs> well, we've already seen that uh, when you make a prequel movie to The Lord of the Rings, it does not go very well, but that oh, is a yeah. story for another episode. If you're interested in knowing more about the making of The Hobbit, I really suggest you watch Lindsay Ellis's video series on YouTube, which is where Chelsea and I got a lot of what we know about the making of those movies and the problems that went into it, and also some of the labor disputes with the crew and cast on the movies who were horribly overworked i thought it was really interesting to get all of that insider information and she did a lot of work and research into it so 
definitely go watch them and and support her. And I'll let that stand as my class commentary for this movie because it was the workers who got screwed in the creation of the Hobbit movies. The real world class struggles. Yeah. But, you know, I do want to talk about the Lord of the, uh, the Fellowship of the Ring in the way we usually talk about movies for a little bit. So why don't we take a few minutes to get into some of the themes and what we think works in the movie? Um, because I definitely want to talk a bit about the motivation of the characters and the theme of determination against adversity, which I think is one of the things that Tolkien captures better than almost any writer. And probably one of the things that works the best about this series is this idea that if you have a goal, you can't really give up. You have to persevere through adversity. And you said it, you have to have some measure of determination and emotional resiliency that can get you so far. But you can't do it alone. That's a big part. That's that a is major message of this Such a huge series. part of it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And that is, I think, one of the reasons why I love The Lord of the Rings so much. Because at its core, it is a story about how one person can never carry the weight of a huge task on their own. It takes in this movie, a fellowship. And that fellowship can schism and shatter and lose members and split off. But there is this kind of idea, and it's it's translated through the filming of the later movies and the cinematic language, because we're seeing the characters who have been broken up from a, from a core group, but they're always moving forward, and we see that concurrently. And that's the same way the books are written. We're seeing... Legolas and Gimli and Aragorn fighting and it's juxtaposed with Sam and Frodo pushing through these seemingly insurmountable odds. Yeah, and I like what you said when you, you were talking about the group having a schism and that's what happens near the end of the first movie and first book. The breaking of the fellowship. Yes, but Aragorn points out to Legolas and Gimli when they're starting to despair that they can still keep the integrity of the core mission of the entire fellowship if they three work together to further the goals of the larger group in some way. And it's like that in the real world with different offshoots of a group that has core val certain core values and goals. If, if there's a schism like that, it doesn't mean that you have to work against one another. You can just be working on separate things that might help towards the larger goal like they do in the movie so yeah. yeah there's also an element of these films that i wish had become kind of the thing that maybe hollywood would have picked up from these movies and that is positive homosocial relationships so that is relationships between people of the same sex non-sexual relationships generally friendships in this case often male friendships that are caring and loving and tender and are portrayed in a positive light. And there's never a need to like quantify one's straight sexuality or anything like that. Characters express affection for each other. They show love for one another. It's just normal. It's just, there's no questioning. There's no need to reaffirm that they're tough men and to like go and, and like make comments about their sexual conquests or anything. That is not what these movies are about. That is not what Tolkien's story 
was about. It was about camaraderie mm -hmm. and fictive kin and like seeing through the adversity and difference of characters. And I think that might be partly why the thing with orcs being this kind of unambiguous evil kind of sucks a little bit more to me because so much of it is about like, oh, well, elves and dwarves don't get along super well in this world because of past grudges. But Gimli and Legolas are one of the best relationships in these movies. Yeah, it's true. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's not very, like, realistic to have one group just be unambiguously evil, but I don't think that's what he was going for when no. he wrote the book. Absolutely. But no, I, I do love the positive portrayal of especially male relationships right. as not, you know, the competitiveness between the male characters is much more playful than other movies. It's not, it's never, they're never competing over the same mates or anything like that. The and same sexual partners. They didn't feel the need to stress this point that, oh, you know, the, we're straight. We, we're not into one another, like you were saying. Right. And I mean, everyone knows me by now. I like when people are friends. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good time. I also want to use this as a segue to talk about something that I, while watching the movie, I made notes that I really wanted to talk about. And that is Boromir. Because Boromir has been one of my favorite characters throughout my fandom for the Lord of the Rings. And his death scene every time makes me cry because it is such a powerful moment of somebody realizing that they have done something wrong and trying to atone for it in the moment. Yeah. And, and like trying to atone for it in a self-sacrificing way, which really gets to me. But at the same time... It doesn't hurt that the music is really sad. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the music for this move, for these movies is very iconic. But what I wanted to also talk about is, you know, Boromir is this character with a very understandable motivation. He says at the Council of Elrond that his people are being slaughtered by the forces of Mordor. His kingdom is on the border between the lands of everyone else and Mordor. Yep. So whenever orc incursions happen, whenever Sauron's forces come out, Boromir's people are the front line and they are being slaughtered by the hundreds or the thousands. He wants the ring to finally stop the bloodshed amongst his people. Now, at the same time, he is asking for a weapon to wipe out another enemy, but it is also an understandable context for him to want that because his nation is being besieged by a foe that you cannot reason with it's basically an the ring is kind of an allegory for an, uh, a nuclear bomb right exactly it is this unbelievable power that can stop a war and it is understandable when one is living in a time of extreme warfare and trauma to want that to end by any means they can so when he says that he wants to use the ring to defend his country, it, you know, you, you can understand where he's coming from, given the context of the world that he's living in. And he points out that everybody else is able to live in peace and prosper because of the sacrifice he and his people make. And it's actually pretty true. Yeah. 
in in the conceit of the story. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, Boromir's death always gets to me. Um, also, I'll talk about this when we cover later uh, movies. But Faramir is probably my favorite character in the Lord of the Rings. I'll get into a whole thing about that at some point. I really like Eowyn a lot. Eowyn's awesome too. I mean, so many great and iconic she characters. Down the- well, that's because no man can kill the Witch King. Yeah. I'm no man. Well, she. That's another me. <laughs> yeah, she and Mary. But, yeah, team well, up. Was... Team up. But Mary, rather... Mary the Hobbit, and remember, men as the name of the race yeah, of humans. Yeah. And <laughs> also, it's it's a team up. It's like we were saying, you can't bring down an unrelenting force on your own, or like an epic level villain on your own. It, it takes a team effort. And you know, that's another thing that really separates like this from. It'll take a team effort to unseat Trump later this year he's kind of like sauron if you really think about it they're both orange (laughs) unambiguously evil (laughs) they sow doubt and discord that's fake news (laughs) nice (laughs) oh god i just had to say it it was right there (laughs) it had to be done well, on that note, maybe it's time to move into evil, stupid, or misunderstood. This is evil, stupid, or misunderstood. The part of the podcast where we take a look at the principal antagonist of the film and determine if they were, I don't know, maybe evil or they could have been misunderstood or maybe they were just stupid. So, guys, Sauron, evil. Okay, let's move on. (laughs) Like archetypal evil, right? He's stupid also. But so... As you can, as you might know from the Cimmerillion, he has these cycles that he has perpetuated throughout the history of this world that has been created in these books. Yeah, and Sauron was once one of the angels like the wizards. Right. And he used to be on another island that only had elves, because the elves were the first race that the gods of this world created and oh besides the angels the Maiar the Maiar yeah and um so the Maiar were kind of helping the elves kind of establish themselves on this large island and then Sauron kind of like corrupted them and he was defeated by the other Maiar and exiled and he made his way over to this other land that was eventually populated by other elves. And he like has had this history of going through these cycles where he would corrupt a group of people over to his side. And basically he's like one of those classic villains who just wants to like achieve total world domination and uh, ultimate power like a conqueror and so yeah when he got to the mainland he he was corrupting other groups of men and elves again 
And he was defeated a second time by, I think, the original group of elves from the island and the other, uh, what are the race of wizards called again? Maiar. And the Maiar. So he was defeated twice before he was exiled to Mordor. This guy just fails at everything he does except for being evil, but then he always just gets beat down by someone. So I'm pretty sure that the backstory they show at the beginning of this movie where they're fighting him and Isildur cuts the ring off of his finger and defeats him, that's the third conflict they were in yeah. and where he was finally quote-unquote defeated they thought he was dead but hold on that does lead into the most important and significant question of this entire episode maybe of the entire history of swords and satire how did sauron get the ring over that gauntlet you know in the darkness bind them i guess i was gonna say maybe <laughs> ring lube oh yeah there you go is that magma since it was created in the fires of mount doom oh god listeners do not use magma for lube yeah that's a bad time strongly advise against um but within the movie they show it shrinking and enlarging to fit people's fingers and it can change its form i'm not gonna say that. <laughs> were you gonna say something about cock rings I was going to say something about buttholes, and then I was going to say something about cock rings. Oh, I'm about to say something about buttholes. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> I was just imagining a guy listening to our podcast. He's completely naked and kind of sandwiched over on himself. He has tongs, blacksmith tongs. He's about to pour molten lava in his ass. <laughs> and then he just hears you, Jamie, be like, don't do it. And he's like, oh, oh. You really saved me there, pal. Oh, man, I have a very important responsibility as the dungeon manager. It's true. Yeah. Molten ass. It's It'll be a new pass. It's not ability. unlike being a president and whatever you say, people are probably going to follow you because people don't do research on their own in general. Yeah, but that can't be a real thing, right? Yeah, you're right. It's not easier to judge than to understand, is it? No, <laughs> never. I just wanted no, to say one cock right. ring to rule them all. Well, oh, that's pretty good. And in the, and in the darkness, in the bind them. <laughs> and in the, the butthole, bind them. Yes. <laughs> Do you think Tolkien wrote that on like a post-it note when he was coming up with the book, and he was just looking at it, and he's like. No, and he just kind of dude. You know Catholics. You know Catholics be freaky. <laughs> so I think Sauron is stupid because because he keeps losing. Yeah, and actually, the first time he had the most powerful <laughs> artifact ever created, and he can't hold on to that fucking thing for it to save his life. Yeah, I think he's stupid for trying to use force, and he Ooh. he. Hot take. He should have uh, gone with what he did the first time and just tried a different tactic because the first time, like I was talking about before, when he was on that island with the first kind of generation of elves, he swayed people th with persuasion and manipulation oh. and kind of politic and, and it was more subtle. And uh, I think if he had gone that route again and just maybe tried to do that with men he might have had more success because men are more corruptible in this uh 
in this world. Definitely. Yeah, I think for Sauron, using that subtle persuasive approach would have been a lot better. Mm -hmm. You know, the guy can just make magic rings and his ring rules them all. So why even whip it out yet? <laughs> he could just start producing magic rings that do minor stuff, like keep you warm when it's cold, right? Mass produce it, sell it to the world so all mankind is wearing them. Then he puts on his ring and they're all his slaves like the ring wraiths, right? Yeah, but he could also kind of like use more subtle means too, where he kind of like uses propaganda and maybe he has a physical form by this point and he he's just like, look, I provide for you. I, yeah, I thought Jack was going to go down like a corporate takeover of Middle Earth route yeah, with that idea. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. what I'm saying. Okay, the Bezos. Okay. A hearts and minds type of thing. Right. Exactly. Make everyone rely on... Uh... He's like underground, like creating the conflicts of the world. Meanwhile, he's convincing everybody else in the realms of men and elves and, and other races to give up their autonomy and their rights in exchange for safety and security against the threats that he's creating and they have no idea, you know? Yeah, that's good. And he could be like that's reminding good. people how good Middle Earth used to be in the past, but how bad it's become now. Yeah. Uh, but also never admit how bad Middle Earth is. There you go. Well, after that thought that doesn't connect to any real world uh, situations whatsoever, why don't we move on to the smithy? <laughs> Welcome to the Smithy, where we forge a rating for this movie after we each share an epic moment or feature from the film. Jack, would you care to tell us an epic moment or feature from the movie and then give it a rating between 1 to 10 Narsils, the sword of Elendil that Isildur used to defeat Sauron, and which was later reforged into Anduriel for Aragorn? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> so there are a you, lot of You're great... going to have to remember that when you use your rating yes. and repeat that whole narrative back to see no. Uh, maybe. <laughs> 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 so uh, let's see. There are a lot of epic mo moments in this film, of course. I've got two of them in mind, but I'd be willing to bet a, a solid dollar <laughs> that i picked you both of your epic moments well let's hear it all right so i'm gonna go with the epic moment that stood out to me well it's an epic feature when frodo is given fantastical mithril chain mail right mm -hmm. mithril like, mithril right yeah exactly and then later, he's showing it to someone else, and they're like, mithril, right? And then he, at one point, when they're underground, Frodo gets stabbed in the torso, and everyone thinks he's dead, until they peel back his shirt, and then it shows his armor, and then the camera zooms in, and in my mind, it's so much grander than it really is. It zooms in really close on Gimli, and it just goes, mithril! <laughs> 
So just the amount of times in one film that people can stare in awe at a set of chain mail and just go, Mithril! <laughs> That's my epic There's feature. more to it, that little hobbit than meets the eye. Robots in disguise. <laughs> uh, it's a pretty fantastic film. Not just because it's fantasy. But, uh, of course, the narration is really great. The world is so cool and well thought out. I love seeing, like, the main character have to leave his comfortable life he loves in order to protect it and do all this sort of cool stuff. All the characters are so charming and have such strong personalities. It's a really strong film. The only thing is... They're getting so much into three hours, and if you want to not feel a little rushed, you have to watch the, like, four-hour version. <laughs> yeah. And there's just so much content they fit into three movies. It's it's very fast pace for something very long. So it's a real endeavor to watch it. It almost feels like hard work just watching a movie. But I, I'm going to say it's very enjoyable despite that. And I'm going to give it eight Sauron killing swords reforged into Aragorn's sword out of ten Sauron killing swords reforged into Aragorn's sword. <laughs> Is it Aragorn or Aragorn? What's the one that isn't the dragon rider? Aragorn. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, eight out of ten. Solid. Chelsea, your epic moment or feature and rating in 1 to 10 Narsils. Narsils. <laughs> there are so many epic moments. Oh, you know what? I want to pick the epic moment when the hobbits realize that shit's getting real. It's going down for real. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. That's and that's when... The fucking ring raids come to Hobbiton, bitch. <laughs> and they're fucking chasing them down on horseback. And they're just running through the woods. Before that, they were just kind of whimsy, whimsy. Oh, fart out my ass. And then... <laughs> <What>? <laughs> the ring raids show up. And they're like, oh, shit. Something bad is happening. And I have to run for my life. Mr. Frodo, shit, it just got real. <laughs> yeah. And, um... They're running through the woods to get away from them, and they get away on the ferry. That's just like an epic moment of realization, and I and it was a major tone shift in the movie, and I really liked that. Yeah, very well said. It was. There were several, and I I made a note of it, but that was one of the biggest ones, in my opinion. And it also, uh, it kind of is one that sticks with me. I had dreams about being chased by ring raids in a snowy hobbiton at one point haven't we all <laughs> so i'm kind of conflicted on giving this movie a number it's very difficult because it's so iconic to the fantasy genre and the books and the movies have inspired so much other creative content in the genre and i'm sure in others that it's kind of hard to put a number on it. Really uh, inspired the political thriller genre quite a bit. <laughs> and at the same time, some elements of it are kind of timeless and some don't hold up, in my opinion. Some timeless aspects of the human condition that kind of still hold true, uh, like about forging friendships and being able to get through adversity if you have 
friends by your side and other things like that. But then there are other elements that I feel are very glaring and kind of I chafe against now, like all the racism. <laughs> and it, it's just more apparent to me than it used to be. So I've changed, <laughs> but this is my opinion we're talking about here. Um, I'm gonna You're not go allowed with... to change your opinion. <laughs> I'm going to go with the 7 out of 10 Narsils for an epic, iconic movie, but that has some problematic aspects to it. Not only in story, but also in real world implications for how it was made, like we mentioned. How about you, Jamie? No, oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I mean, I've basically already pointed out, but my epic moment for the movie is the death of Boromir, his last stand against the Urukai. Uh, it, it, like I said, it makes me cry every time. Um, it's just such a powerful moment of redemption that you know comes so quickly after this moment, after this kind of like lead up to Boromir being maybe not really sharing the values of the rest of the fellowship necessarily, but also like being a part of the group, somebody who is willing to stand up and fight against Sauron. He has a great moment with Aragorn, Sean Bean and Viggo Mortensen really like deliver this moment and this gravitas of, of the death of Boromir and what it means for both of them the way that, you know, that they were going, they talk about how they were going to stand together and fight together. And Boromir acknowledges Aragorn as the king of Gondor, which he had kind of been dismissive about earlier. I don't know. It just, that scene packs in so much. And I just really love how sweet and tender they are in this final moment of this character's life. We don't see a lot of death scenes that don't feel cheesy in movies, but this one just really works for me. The fact that Boromir is fighting back to try to do anything he can to make up for what he's done wrong. So that's really the moment that stands out to me the most. And the, and the one I think about the most from this movie, it is very hard to give the fellowship of the rings a rating because it is so iconic and, has left such an impact on me. It has defined so much of the fiction I've consumed since seeing this movie for the first time. It is definitely a big part of the reason why I am a huge fantasy fan, which I've always been, but like this movie really helped cinch it for me. So I think I'm going to give this movie nine out of 10 Narsils. It's one of my favorite films. I don't believe that there's really a perfect movie in existence, but for me, this is one of the ones that comes closest to it. And I know we've given other movies higher ratings, but like that does not reflect that. I don't think that this is one of the best movies we've covered or one of my favorite movies. Oh, I don't know. Damn. I almost want to change my rating now. <laughs> Well, think about it like this, you know, just because it didn't get like a perfect 30 swords from us, like it's subjective. Clearly, we've addressed that this is the most influential film I think that we've watched so far. 
you know, a piece of art doesn't have to be perfect for it to be massively successful and influential. No, absolutely. And, and that- it doesn't even necessarily mean that I don't love this movie more than almost any other movie because I really do. And I've probably watched this movie more than any other movie in my adult life. Yeah, same for me, even though I gave it a 7 out of 10 Narsils. I I still really love the movie. Yeah, it, it's it's very hard to rate because it is such an influential movie. It kind of, to me, transcends a rating to some extent because, like I said, it is like the one of the reasons that we're here doing this. It yeah. made me... I've always been obsessed with fantasy, True. but like this made it carry into my adult life. Well, that should do it for our show this week. Thank you for tuning in and listening and spending... This time, indulging our egos as we talk about uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. If you enjoyed the show, maybe pop on over to iTunes or Apple Podcast and leave a review because that will help other people find out about our show. And hey, while you're at it, why don't you go tell your friends? Yeah, even even cooler. Having friends and telling them about our show, that's the coolest thing you can do. Yeah. And making friends because of our show. Well, that would be even cooler. And if you want to do that, you can head on to Facebook and join the Swords and Satire group or follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Swords and Satire. And if you feel inclined to write an email because you're just itching to write a little bit more, you can send us an email to swordsandsatire at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought of the Fellowship of the Ring or your first journeys into Middle-earth or anything like that. And hey, maybe we'll read it on the show. That would be sick. And if you're disgusting. (laughs) And if you're really feeling generous, head on over to Patreon and maybe decide to become one of our patrons and get awesome bonus content every month. Even if you can throw only throw us a few shillings every month, we would appreciate it. If you're able. That would be totally ill. (laughs) I think that's an old Middle Earth expression for good, right? Yeah. Yeah, repulsive. (laughs) But hey, until next time, Hail Hail Cross. Cross!